All right. If uh, want to find your way to your seats. Am I good there, Drew? It's about good? Okay. So um, as you guys are settling back in, in uh, three weeks from today, I'm going to be giving a two-part series on the second coming of Jesus Christ. So I'm going to tell you all that I believe. You'll know all that I believe on the events that are going to precede him coming and what it's going to look like for Jesus to come back. So don't miss that. Uh, so you'll find out that it's Trudeau. He's the beast. And um, yeah, the, the, yeah, that's right. <laughs> And the vaccine is the mark of the beast. <laughs> see? See? Ah, <laughs> uh, yes, indeed. That's why this one's not being recorded. Actually, this one is being recorded. This is the one that... You've got to edit that one out. Oh, boy. Um, Revelation chapter 2. Turn with me there. Revelation chapter 2, beginning to read in verse 18. Revelation chapter 2, beginning to read in verse 18. And uh, if you would stand with me as we read together. Revelation chapter 2, beginning to read in uh, verse 18. And to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, The Son of God, who has eyes of the flame of fire and feet are like burnished bronze, says this. I know your deeds, your love and faith and service and perseverance, and that your deeds of late are greater than that of first. But I have this against you, that you tolerate the woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, and she teaches and leads my bondservants astray so that they commit acts of immorality and eat things sacrificed to idols. And I gave her time to repent, and she does not want to repent of her immorality. Behold, I will cast her on a bed of sickness, and those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation, unless they repent of their deeds. And I will kill her children with pestilence. And all the churches will know that I am the one who searches the minds and the hearts. And I will give to each one according to his deeds. But I say to you, the rest, who are in Thyatira, who do not hold this teaching, who have not known the deep things of Satan, as they call them, I place no other burden on you. Nevertheless, what you have, hold fast until I come. And he who overcomes and he who keeps my deeds until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations. And he will rule them with an iron rod as the vessels of the potter are broken to pieces, as I also have received authority from my Father. And I will give him the morning star. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Let's pray. So Lord, when we open up your Bible, we uh, believe this is the standard of truth for this world and the standard of truth for us. That's why we submit to it. So when we open this up, Lord, it confronts some of the stuff that we've been thinking in our own minds at times. It confronts some of the ways in which we behave, and it should do that. Because, Lord, your way is not the default that we have inside of us. So I pray this morning, as we read your word, you would help us to understand it. You'd help us to uh, know the truth for our lives and, therefore, how to implement it into practice. We want to be doers of the word and not hearers only. So, Lord, use your word now to penetrate through to the depth of who we are, to change us. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. And you may be seated. <clears throat> so this is the uh, fourth letter to the churches. 
Uh, you remember that uh, there's seven different churches that uh, Jesus is writing to. Uh, seven churches, they're all located in eastern Turkey. And uh, of these seven churches, the reason why each of them had their own specific letters because each of them had their own specific context. Their, their own specific uh, group of things that were going on in their own church as well. And so Jesus had to specifically refer to each one of them. As we've said before, these obviously are not letters written to us at Pine Ridge. They're letters written to churches who belonged in the first century. So why did God make sure they got put into the Bible for us? Because there's stuff we can learn. There's stuff we can learn from these churches. And so that's why God made sure this got put in the Bible for us. So what do we learn about this church then? What do we learn about this church in Thyatira? I've broken it into three sections. The first section is how the church is doing well. How is the church doing well? Secondly, where they needed varying degrees of correction. And then thirdly, the coming reward for those who remain committed to Jesus Christ. So it's broken up into three sections this morning. First of all, then, what the church is doing well. And we pick this up in verse 19. I know your deeds, your love, your faith, your service, your perseverance, and that your deeds of late are greater than those at first. This church was known for putting their faith into action. And Jesus is saying here, I'm well aware. I'm well aware of what's going on in your church. I'm well aware of your love and your faith and of your service and perseverance, and I want to commend you for it. And so he's doing this in the letter. Right off the bat, he's commending them for this. And to commend them for their love and service really has to do with how they treated other people. And to be doing well in the areas of love and service means that the church had this ongoing pattern of looking to the interests of other people rather than to themselves. A number of years ago, about 10 years ago, I had the opportunity to sit in Dennis Kinlaw's living room. For those of you who don't know who he is, uh, he taught at Asbury Seminary and was the president of Asbury College. He's written several books. I had the chance to sit with him in his living room. He was uh, in his 80s at that point. I was very humbled to be in his living room. And he was talking to me about, uh, and a few other guys who were with me, what selfishness looks like. What does selfishness looks like? And he, and he says, selfishness really asks these three questions. What's in it for me? How am I going to look? And what am I going to get out of it? What's in it for me? How am I going to look? And what am I going to get out of it? If you're doing action and behavior these days, and this is the background um, thought going on in your head, you're functioning out of selfishness. And this church was not looking to the interests of themselves. They were looking for the interests of other people. It's self-sacrifice. So what I want takes a hit for the sake of other people. It's denying yourself for the sake of other people. And such behavior always asks this question, how can I make the lives of people around me better? How can I make the lives of the people around me better? If you're asking that question and you're functioning according to that question, you're acting in accordance with selflessness. That was this church. That was this church of Thyatira. Jesus himself says, I know. I've been watching. I've been seeing your love and your service toward one another, and he's commending them for it. Now, there's no doubt that they would have had slip-ups in this area. But from Jesus' perspective, they were known for this pattern of modeling self-sacrifice, of making the lives around them better. Of course, that should be the testimony of every church. But that's the testimony of this church. But the church wasn't just known for their love to others. They were known for their commitment to God. And so he commends them also for their faith and their perseverance. It meant that their commitment to Jesus Christ was rock solid. 
And you'll remember that there was a persecution going on in eastern Turkey at this time. They were still rock solid in their faith with Jesus Christ. And there was also idol worship and stuff going on, and they were still rock solid in their faith of Jesus Christ, apart from this smaller group within the church. And I'll talk about them in a minute. But what's even more impressive about this church is that they were growing in these characteristics. Did you catch it there at the end of verse 19? That your deeds of late are greater than they were at first. They're greater than they were at first. This is very impressive. So your deeds and the way you're behaving now is greater than they were at first. This means that their demonstration of love, their demonstration of faith and perseverance and service was continuing to grow. It was getting better and better as time went on. Again, this should be the normal testimony of any Christian and of any church. Sometimes, though, there's this mentality among Christians to get into a coasting mode. And when you get into a coasting mode, you're self-absorbed and you're only thinking about the people maybe within the church belonging to one another in some kind of social club. And although I'm not trying to label all of these churches like this, uh, sometimes they're the kinds of churches that only have white-haired people left in them. Why? Because they became self-immersed and it's about the social club within the church. And sometimes you can get into a coasting mentality. That's not the church of Thyatira. And it's not to be the life of the church of any New Testament church in the Bible, let alone our own church. It should be one that we continuously grow. Hebrews chapter 5, you don't have to turn there, but Hebrews chapter 5 talks about what it should normally look like in the life of a Christian. It says this in Hebrews 5 verse 11. He says, you guys... So the letter, uh, the guy who is writing to uh, the Hebrew Christian, he says, you all have become dull of hearing. You become dull of hearing. For though by this time you should be teachers, the normal growth, you should have gone to the point where you're teachers, you have need again of somebody to teach you the elementary principles of the oracles of God. He's not saying they're not Christians. He's saying, you're just not moving on. You become dull of hearing. He says, for everyone who partakes only of milk is not acquainted with the word of righteousness. They don't know this very well. They're not acquainted with it very well. But those who partake of meat are well acquainted with the word of righteousness because they put it into practice. You spent more time in God's word. You spent more time with a community of believers who are encouraging you to grow, and therefore you are growing. It's this growth-type mentality of a child who, to begin with, is only partaking of milk, but as they grow up, they start partaking of meat. And this should be the normal case with Christians. Yes, we start off, we don't know very much about it, but the more we know, the more we can train our senses to understand between good and evil, and we move forward in that direction. Essentially, the longer you've been a Christian, the more self-sacrificial you should be. It should be a testimony of our marriages, too. The longer you've been married, the, 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 the more depth you should have to your love because you practice it more and more and you're getting closer and closer because you're more concerned about your spouse than you are about yourself. That should be the testimony in the church. And Thyatira, they're known for this growing relationship with God and others. And I would say, let it be known of us. May it be said of us, this church. But even more than most of them growing, there was this group within the church that was clearly not and they were in deep trouble. We pick it up there in verse 20. I have this against you. You tolerate the woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, and she teaches and leads my bondservants astray, 
so that they commit acts of immorality and eat things sacrificed to idols. It would appear here that there's one key woman in the church who is leading the charge, somebody who claimed to be a prophetess, and she was leading the charge of people to endorse another form of religion. Remember, this is not written to the secular culture. This is written to the church. These are people who believe that they could be in the church, endorse Christianity, and endorse another form of religion at the same time. And so what we're talking about here is this, these two acts that are together, both here and, and back at a previous church we talked about in Pergamum, this notion of committing acts of immorality and eating things sacrificed to idols. What, what are we talking about? <clears throat> well, back in the day... Um, there would be something in, uh, there was, there's, especially in this church and in Pergamum and also in Corinth, there was this pressure from the cultural context to participate in idol temple worship. And to participate in idol temple worship, at some point in the service, in the idol service, there would be this meat that would be sacrificed to idols. And when you partook of that meat, you are participating in the idol worship event. If you're taking notes, jot this verse down. It's 1 Corinthians 10.21. It says this, You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons at the same time. To partake of the table of demons means you're going to church. Yeah, sure, you're going to church on Sunday. But during the week, you're heading off to the idol temple worship. And what's going on there, this meat that's sacrificed to idols, you eat it. And he says, just like you can't partake of the table of the Lord, which we were talking about communion and the table of demons at the same time. We're talking about events that happened in those worship services that both were participating in. Now here's the crazy thing. People thought they could be Christians and head down to the idol temple worship during the week and could combine the two of them. This is not written to secular people. This is written to the church, and people believed that they could endorse both. In other words... There were church-going believers in Jesus who thought there could be two religions at the same time. I can love Jesus and I can love another God at the same time. Now, for us, it's quite hard to imagine. How could we ever imagine Christians who come to the conclusion that they could come and worship the Lord and be abandoned to Him, learn from His Word, and then the same week go off into some idol temple worship at the same time? It's hard for us to imagine that. How could Christians ever conclude that Christianity could stand alongside idol temple worship? And it's referenced here to somebody by the name of Jezebel. I doubt that's her actual name here. I think what's going on here, this reference to Jezebel, is going back to the Old Testament. There's a woman in the Old Testament named Jezebel, and she was leading King Ahab, who was the king of Israel at that time. She was leading him astray into, into idol worship. Back in that day, it was Baal. And if you want to look at this later, it's about chapter 16 of 1 Kings to about chapter 21. But the center of that text was chapter 18, and Elijah, all alone, he comes in front of all the people of Israel. They're all gathered together, and he says, you guys got to decide. It can't be both and. You either worship Baal or you worship God. What's it going to be? Who's the real God? And they're all kind of coward, and they didn't say a thing. And you know the rest of the story. He says, okay, here's what we'll do. We'll put this God Baal to the test. I'll put him to the test. You guys, all you prophets of Baal, you can put up all your stuff together. And then I'll also put up uh, um, uh, a sacrificial system to the Lord. And whoever lights it by fire from heaven, that will be the true God. And you remember the rest of the story. But the point is, is that Jezebel was leading the people back then into idol uh, worship of Baal. 
And the people there thought they could combine the two. So the reference back to Jezebel here is really a reference back to what was going on back then. Here's the thing. Jesus is not addressing something that has just happened in the church. Look at verse 21. I gave her time to repent. I gave her time to stop doing this stuff. But she wouldn't do it. I gave her time to repent and she will not have anything to do with it. And all the people with her. What I like about this is that God is patient. He's quite patient. And so even though this was going on in the church, he was patient and he wants them to repent. He wants them to come back to himself. And again, this is not the whole church. Remember verse 24. There are some there who do not hold to this teaching who have not known the deep things of Satan. So this is just a small section of the church. This thing was going on not only in Thyatira, but it was going on in Pergamum. And it was going on previously in Corinth. So how could this happen? How could this happen that a church would endorse both? It's because the pervasive context around them was speaking more into their life than God's word and the community of believers was. This happens all throughout the Old Testament. Remember the story of, of uh, the Exodus? When the Israelites, when they were initially in Egypt, you look back at the record and they were worshiping the gods of Egypt. Why? Because that was what was around them. Or Jeremiah 44, they're worshiping the queen of heaven along with our God. Why are they doing that? Because that's a pervasive context around them. Why is this church doing this? That was pervasive all around them. There's idol temple worship going all around them. In all of these, in all of these situations, the cultural influence was speaking more into their life than God's word and the community of believers. And as a result, compromise is right around the corner. But Jesus is not tolerant of any other religion. He's not tolerant of any other God, and he is not tolerant of any other way. Jesus said in John 14, 6, I'm it. I'm the way, the truth, and life. There's only one way to God, that's through me. Not through Muhammad too, not through Buddhism as well. It's through Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone. And he's intolerant of this. And God, our God, is a very jealous God. And he will not put up with people who will permit this syncretism. So this idol worship had been going on for some time in the church. And now Jesus is saying, that's it, I've had enough. No more. And so he's coming out in judgment. And this is severe judgment. Have a listen. I gave her time to repent. She won't repent of her immorality. Behold, I will cast her on a bed of sickness. Those who commit adultery with her and will be put into great tribulation unless they repent. And I will kill the children with pestilence. And all the churches will know that I am the one who searches the minds and the hearts. And I give to each one according to the deeds. At the beginning of the letter here, it denotes Jesus as having these eyes of a, of a flaming torch. It's really a reference to a judgment. And God, yes, he is known as being patient, but there's a limit to that patience. It says here that Jesus gave them time to repent. And he's always patient that way. He always wants people to come back to him in truth. And I wonder how patient you would be. If you were a leader of a denomination, and you found out that there was one of your churches who had embraced Christianity, but also embraced Islam. Embraced Christianity, but also embraced Sikhism. Embrace Christianity, but also embrace Buddhism. 
How long would you be patient? Jesus said, I was patient with him. I gave him time to repent, but now it's done. I've had enough. And of course, God is patient all throughout the Bible. He's not willing that any would perish, but that all would come to salvation, 2 Peter 3, 9. But now his patience has run out. And this is just a sidebar, but there are sometimes people who say they don't like the God of the Old Testament, and they separate the God of the Old Testament from the God of the New. The God of the Old Testament, that's a judging, wrathful God. I really like more the God of the New Testament, who's kind and generous and loving and never carries out his wrath. That's not the case according to Revelation 2. Did you read what's going on here? I will cast on her a bed of sickness, and anybody who commits adultery with her, I'll put through great tribulation. Furthermore, in verse 23, I will kill her children with pestilence. We're talking about a God who's patient, yes, wanting everybody to repent, but if there are unrepentant people in the church promoting other people to join them in that sin, judgment is coming, and it's active judgment here. Because without that judgment, it could have a devastating effect on the church. Has God done this before in the New Testament? Yeah, he has. Remember in Corinth, if you're taking notes, this is 1 Corinthians 11, in Corinth back then, that in the church service, in the communion service itself, there was prejudice right there in the worship service. It was the wealthy against the poor. And the wealthy thought that we have this extra privilege, but we're not going to allow these other people to participate in communion with us. And do you remember Paul's words there? He says, that's why some of you are sick. And that's why some of you are even asleep. That's the active judgment of God. And of course, he's doing it here in Revelation chapter 2. It would appear to me that this kind of active judgment comes when there's a potentially devastating outcome to his church. At that juncture point, it seems like that's when God will step in with harsher judgment. Now, I'm not saying that he will. I'm saying that he can. Now, here's the crazy thing about what's going on with these idol worship people. In verse 24, it says, I don't put any further burden on you, those who don't hold to this teaching, who have, now watch this, who have, do not know the deep things of Satan as they call them. That's what they're calling it, knowing the deep things of Satan. We know the deep things of Satan. We also know the deep things of God. It's unbelievable that this kind of thing was going on in the church. And just like the death was the outcome for Jezebel, and all the prophets of Baal, so would be the outcome for those in this church as well who continued on in idol worship. But as mentioned before, this is only some in the church, some who held to this double standard. So here's a question. If there's only some in the church who are grabbing a hold of this, what are the rest doing about it when this is going on? The answer in the text? Nothing. They weren't doing a thing about it. The rest of the sold-out Christians, the love, the service, the perseverance that they're known for, as a group in the church, was doing this other thing, <clears throat> believing that they could be syncretistic and holding on to idol worship and Jesus at the same time. What were they doing about it? Absolutely nothing. <clears throat> we pick it up there in verse 20. I have this against you. You tolerate. You tolerate this. You tolerate the woman Jezebel. You tolerate this in the church. What are you doing? Michelle said it earlier in the church. She said they're turning a blind eye. That's a good way to put it. It's going on in the church, but they're turning a blind eye to it. They ought to have done something about it. They ought to have been intolerant of this kind of behavior in the church, but they were doing nothing. Now, tolerance and intolerance has been hijacked in our society. Those terms have been hijacked in our society. Rick Warren actually has a really good quote on this. He says this, 
our culture has accepted two huge lies. The first is that if you disagree with somebody's lifestyle, well, you hate them. You disagree with somebody, well, you hate them. The second is that to love someone means you agree with everything they do and everything they say. If you love somebody, you agree with everything they do. Both are nonsense, and you don't have to compromise convictions to be compassionate. There's people in our church, you guys, I've talked with some of you, and sometimes you'll have these disagreements with other people, and they'll say, well, you hate them. Why do you hate them? No, hold on. I don't hate them. Furthermore, do you disagree with me? Because if you disagree with me, then you hate me? No, this disagreement over the ways in which people live doesn't mean you necessarily hate them. But if we buy into that, then we could actually be pulled along towards this tolerance mentality. God says here, not a chance. We're intolerant of that. Are you tolerant of your kids when they lie? You tolerant of your kids when they're misbehaving? No, you love them enough to discipline them. The Bible talks about this. If you love your kids, you'll discipline them. Actually, it says, if you don't love your kids, you won't discipline them. So if loving others means that you address the sin in hopes of bringing them back to the living God, why were these Christians in the church not doing anything about it? Well, I don't know. The Bible doesn't tell us why they weren't doing anything about it. But maybe from our culture, maybe we could take a few ideas. Maybe it had something to do with not wanting to offend. Maybe because you didn't want to get into an argument. You didn't want the backlash that they, maybe they'd, would, they would receive. Or maybe they didn't want to be liked. These are the common reasons maybe in our context as really nice Canadians that we, put, that we struggle with. But again, this is not the first time this has happened in the Bible, in the New Testament. This kind of toleration has happened in Corinth. Some of you remember that story in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. You don't have to turn there. I'll just, refer, I'll just refer to it for you. Listen to this. This is in another Christian church. It's actually reported that there is immorality among you, an immorality of such a kind as does not even exist among the Gentiles, that somebody has his own mom. Somebody has his father's wife. And you've become arrogant and have not mourned instead in order that the one who had done this deed might be removed from your midst. Somebody is sleeping with their own mom in the church, and you're doing nothing about it. In chapter, in verse, chapter 5 and verse 13, it says, You should have removed the wicked man from among you. They were doing nothing about it. Why should people who embrace sin in our churches and promoting that to others, why should that sin be removed? Because it says in 1 Corinthians 5 and verse 6, do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough? Do you not recognize that this is going to spread in the church? That's why you have to stop it. But just like Jesus, he gave time for these people to repent and change, so the church is that way too. We want to be um, patient with those within the church. Matthew chapter 18 gives us a model for how we deal with it. If somebody's embracing and practicing sin in the church... Somebody should go to them and say, brother, sister, you can't be functioning like this. This isn't right. And you're trying to draw them back so that they turn from it. And if they don't turn from it, you bring somebody else with you. And you say, brother, sister, we, we really don't think this is right according to God. And you walk them through because you're trying to bring them back. And if that doesn't work, you tell other people in the church, say, we need to bring this brother or sister back out of this behavior. And if that doesn't work, 
You tell the person this kind of behavior is unwelcomed within the church of God. Have I seen public sin in the church affect the godly character of others within the church? Of course. And not just the negative effect inside the church. What about outside the church? If the church is full of sinful behaviors that does not go unchecked, isn't that a church full of hypocrites? And isn't that exactly what the world can't stand inside the church? That's not what the world can't stand inside the church. That should be what we can't stand within the church. And if we can't stand it, we're intolerant of it. And if we're intolerant of it, we go with kindness, with gentleness, with love, and we try to bring them back. Here in Thyatira, it says you tolerate this in the church. But apart from the danger these people could have on the church if they were not removed, Jesus says, I don't have any correction for you. Nothing else. He actually says that in Revelation um, in verse, chapter 2 and verse 24. Those who do not hold to this teaching, who have not known the deep things of Satan as they call them, I place no other burden on you. You're doing well. Your love, your faith, your perseverance, your love, the deeds of late are greater than that at first. <clears throat> you guys are doing well. You should not tolerate what's going on in the church because it could have a very negative effect in the church. You should not tolerate this. But apart from that, I don't place any other burden on you. Was it dangerous within the church? Very dangerous because it could bring the whole church down. But if they continued on with Jesus, the reward for them in eternity was waiting. These were growing Christians, growing Christians. They hadn't been affected yet. So he says, you continue on, be intolerant of that, but continue on as overcomers to temptation, and you will receive a great reward. In all of these uh, letters to these churches, there's this notion of what happens to the people who overcome. These are the people who do not give in to selfish living. These are people who do not give in to the wider context of living for yourself instead of others. They're called overcomers. And such overcomers, it says, they will be protected from judgment. Chapter 2 and verse 10 and 3 and verse 5. They will have an inheritance in the city of God. Chapter 3 and verse 12. They'll participate in Christ's reign. Chapter 2, verses 26 to, 30, 26 to 28. And chapter 3, verse 21. And they will inherit eternal life. This is all throughout Thyatira was a unique church, and they were growing. By and large, they were growing. But there was a danger inside the church. There were those who needed to repent, and they needed to be removed from the church for what they were doing. And the church, as a larger group, who were committed to the Lord in love and faith and perseverance, you should remove that wickedness from your church. But they were still growing in their relationship with God, and so they're commended for it. You can understand why a letter like this would be written and put in the Bible because there's a lot that we can learn from that, a lot that we can learn from this particular church. I've got a few lessons for you here, and I want to uh, put them up behind me here. I don't know if we kept... Did we keep that? Yes, we did keep it on. So I've got four. There, there could probably be, you know, six, seven, or ten of them, but here's the four that um, I would hope that we would embrace from this little section. First of all, the testimony of every church. 
testimony of every church should be one of continued growth in selfless love, faith, and, and service. So where are you at in your, Christian, in your Christian faith with God? You should be continuing to grow in that. You should be becoming more selfless. Just like any marriage, any Christian marriage in this church, it should be growing in a relationship with one another and how you're being selfless toward one another. And in the church, again, the question should always be for us, how can I make the lives of others better around me? And it really has to do with self-sacrifice on our part. So this should be the testimony of every church and every Christian. Secondly, compromising faith occurs when the secular context around you is speaking into your life more than God's Word and His believing community. That's what was going on in Thyatira. That's what's going on in Pergamum. That's what's going on in Corinth. The, the secular context around them was coming into the church, and they were allowing it to come into the church. There's only one way that that happens. When you're listening more, when, the, when your secular context, however it's speaking into your life, when that is more pervasive than God's Word and the believing community, that's why it's so important that we, that we learn from God's Word, why it's so important that we, that we hang out and be uh, with other Christians and allow them to speak into our lives. It's very, very important. If not, compromise is right around the corner. Thirdly, God is known for being patient. He is known for this. But there is a limit to that patience, especially when there is a potentially devastating outcome to the church. It appears to me from the scriptures here that God will especially come in with judgment when the, when the, when the, when the embraced sin in the church is having or could have a devastating effect on the rest of the church. It seems like that's when God could come in with active judgment. So God, yes, of course, He's patient, and we need to be patient too. But there's a limit to that patience. And then finally, tolerance of public sin in the church can bring the whole church down, and therefore it's got to be removed. Again, we're patient. But tolerance of public sin in the church, it can bring the whole church down. A little leaven can leaven the whole church. And so it needs to be removed. Removed. 